Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This is a trigger warning. This episode contains information and graphic detailing of sexual assault, sexual violence, and rape, which may be triggering to some listeners. Please continue listening with caution. Welcome back to Hashtag RealPod. I'm your host, Victoria Garrick, and on today's episode, we will hear from sexual assault survivor and now one of the bravest people I have truly ever had the pleasure of speaking with, Brenda Tracy. I first heard of Brenda through mutual friends in the athletic community, and I was just absolutely captivated by her strength and her story. While I have never been the victim of sexual assault, I am an ally, and I want all conversations to be had and voices to be heard on this podcast, and I think Brenda's story is so moving and so important because sexual violence and assault on college campuses is far too common. For those of you that don't know Brenda, I'm going to give an overview of her story so that when her and I jump into conversation, you're familiar with her and what she's been through so that you can understand everything and all that she stands for now. In 1998, when Brenda was 24, she was drugged and gang raped by four college football players. After going straight to the police, she was told she had no case. Officers told her that the money she would need to spend and the trials she would have to endure would not be worth it since she had no case. So Brenda went home with no justice for the crime or brutal assault that had happened to her. She spent years trying to heal from her rape and battled many mental health repercussions, even contemplating suicide. It wasn't until over a decade later that Brenda and an investigator reevaluated the case and discovered there was a huge part of the story that Brenda was never supposed to find out. A group of people at Oregon State had conspired to silence Brenda so that there would be no negative noise around the football program. Because... After all, Brenda actually did have a great case. The officers even had tape confessions from all four men who had raped her. But those involved and the DA who lied to her were all in on a plan orchestrated by administrators at the school so that what happened to Brenda and her accusations would be silenced. They even threw her rape kit in the trash. All of this so that they could finalize the funding they were about to receive for what's now known as Oregon State's Research Stadium. To this day, Brenda says in her speeches that we might like to believe our lives are priceless, but Brenda's life, a group of people decided that it had a price, and it was the cost of that stadium. The first time I heard Brenda say that in one of her speeches, I had chills through my body and tears in my eyes because it's just so hard to believe that a group of human beings 
could do this to someone. Brenda joins me today to share the details of her story, the lifelong trauma that she's had to deal with since, and the gradual healing journey that she has found for herself that is still an everyday process. She now travels the country speaking to hundreds of college football teams and coaches sharing her story, which is so brave and so admirable, and she promotes her message, Set the Expectation, where she aims to encourage the 90% of good men to be the difference. Because Brenda still lives in Oregon, we conducted this interview over Skype video chat, so if the sound quality is slightly lower than usual, that is why, but I would like to give a big thank you to Brenda for joining me today on Hashtag RealPod and for being a voice and beacon of hope for survivors everywhere. Um, With my podcast, it's super important to me that my guests are excited about the conversation and excited for it to be out there. So if anything is said that you don't want said, or you start talking about a family member and you're like, wait, I want to bring them up, whatever it is, I can always okay. put that out for you. Okay. Okay. And if you start to say something you don't want to say, you can be like, let's restart. And then I'll cut that out. Okay. And if I kind of just look away from you when I'm talking about certain parts of my story or anything, it's nothing against you. It's just because it's really hard for me to talk about it one-on-one with people. Sometimes it, for whatever reason, it's easier when it's a bigger group and you kind of, you don't, you don't look at them. You just kind of look through them when I share certain thing details about my story. So if I'm not looking at you, it's nothing against you. It just means I'm uncomfortable and that's how I get through it. Of course. So. And I'm happy that you communicated with that, that to me, because something that I was totally moved by was just the courage and strength you have to tell the story in front of so many people. And I guess my initial thought was, to explain one of the most painful experiences of your life to hundreds of people seems super challenging, but now I can understand how even just with one or two people, it could be even harder. It feels even more intense when it's one or two people because you can't just look through them. Do you know what I mean? When it's a group and it's an audience, I can kind of look through them and it still looks like I'm commanding the room and it still looks like I'm looking at somebody, but I'm really not. I can't, I'm, when I go through certain details of my story, I'm really unable to make like eye contact with someone. And that's just part of how I cope and get through the process. But when you're with one person or two people, it's like, I know they can tell I'm not looking at them. (laughs) So (laughs) that connection can take it to such a deeper level. And it's just, it can be uncomfortable. If you, I did not know that. So if you would prefer to do audio and then you don't even have to worry about me, let, we can totally do that as well. No, it, no, it's okay. I just want you to know that if I look away from you or look down, that's just me trying to get through what I'm doing. Of it's course. Just pro- it's just a process of how and I got to do stuff. do anything you need to do to feel the most at ease. Okay. I'm just grateful to have you on RealPod because Sexual assault and sexual violence is so prevalent, sadly, on college campuses. And I know that you sort of aim your story towards men. And we'll we'll go to that later because I think that's super powerful and I want you to explain it. Well, my audience is primarily female. But I thought that it still is super inspiring to see someone like you have the bravery. And I want to... I don't want to say forgiveness, but a lot of things you've done have shown this, that you've sort of forgiven this past. And I think for, for women and young girls who are maybe experiencing assault or that could happen to them in the future, I think having you kind of walk us today through your story and, and your experience can help thousands as you have been traveling yeah. all those yeah. teams. 
Yeah. Well, and I think too, one of the things too, um, that when I talk with women a lot is I talk to them about the fact that I think I have a unique experience in the way that I've really been hurt by men, but I've also really been helped by men and like healed, gone through a healing process with men, which I think a lot of women don't have that opportunity to have that. And so I think it's important for me to share my story, not just because of that, but then also to let women know, like, here's what I'm doing with men, because the onus is always on us to do stuff and prevent stuff and all that. But it just helps women to know, like, oh, somebody's out there talking to these men, working with these men, engaging them, empowering them, educating them, because it's not easy. And I think it's a very unique job. Do you know what I mean? For women to be working with men on these issues, um, especially survivors, because like really like how many of us really want to do this? How many of us really want to walk into like what we perceive as a lion's den and share our story? You know what I mean? It's it's much for me. It's like there, there's a huge difference between walking in a room full of male athletes and walking in a room full of female athletes. So Definitely. totally different experience. And then just also letting women know like how I how I approach men how I engage them, what are the specific things that I do and the differences between where women are on these issues and men are on these issues. I think having a basic knowledge and understanding of how, how do we meet each other where we're at and work together so it's not divisive between men and women, because that's a problem. Definitely. And something I wanted to ask you, which I'll bring up now is obviously when you go into these rooms of college football players and the, the staffs and all the administrators, your goal is to help inspire them to be that change and to set yeah. the expectation for the men that come after them. But given the stats, a part of you, if you, if this comes into your mind that someone you're speaking to in that audience has been a perpetrator, has been oh. someone who assaulted someone. Oh, I'm so, keenly aware. Yes. And there's what, yeah. There's probably a rapist in every single room I go to. And what's that like when you're preparing or you're walking on stage and you know that someone in the audience is doing everything you're putting your life in. That's probably, well, there's a couple things. So it's probably one of the reasons I tend to kind of look through people and not at them because when I'm sharing the most like horrific, vulnerable parts of my story of what happened in that apartment, I don't want to be, I feel like I don't want to get traumatized by a look from one of them because there's going to be people that don't have compassion and empathy for me. And if I see that on your face, that's going to be really hard for me. Like if I'm literally like tearing open my wound in front of you and I'm getting a look of no compassion, no empathy for me at all, I'm scared of that. And so that's part of the reason I kind of look through people because I'm scared of the, um, the disbelief, um, you know, are people going to blame me? You know, all the, the regular things that survivors worry about. Um, but then the other thing too, is that I focus on the 90% of the good men. So I know for a fact, like when I walk into a room, there's probably 90% of the men who don't do these things and maybe 10% who are really part of the problem. And I focus on the 90% and trying to engage them, empower them so that they can kind of overwhelm the 10% so that hopefully we can keep the 10% in line or push them out really. So I just try to focus on that. There's more men in this room that are good than are bad. <laughs> Definitely. And I think, the main thing that you're getting at there is most people will experience trauma and they never speak about it again. And if they do, yeah. it's in a quiet room with a psychologist who they trust, or it's maybe with a parent or one friend that they're confiding yeah. in. That's when they tear open their wound. But you do this, you've done it over a hundred times to strangers and to people that might not strangers. accept or might not believe. And yeah. so, 
what was, and I want you to kind of take me back to the first time you were going to put your story into words and know you were going to take the stage and kind of revisit this. And just what was that like? Because this is obviously a, a completely lesser scale, but I speak about depression. And when I have to revisit the times I like had suicidal thoughts or, or, or was in a really dark place, sometimes I, I don't write my speech for like weeks and I have to pull it together the night before because I don't even want to open the computer and go there. And you've experienced something that is just far beyond what most women can even can even hear about. And so what was it like when you were kind of putting your story out into the world that first time? Well, it really hasn't changed much. I mean, it feels like every time I share the story is just as hard. I think the only thing that changes over time is my confidence level. Um, but I still feel terror, fear. I feel nauseous. I feel kind of sick. There's always an unknown factor before I get up in front of a room. So it's always scary, but I just do it afraid. I mean, fear's usually a liar. <laughs> and it's a very courageous thing that most athletes think they're the strongest, especially male, male athletes. They like to think, you know, they're super strong, they're unbreakable, they could do anything. And here you are doing something that most human beings could never do. Um, and so I appreciate you coming onto the podcast today and being willing to kind of take, I want you to do whatever's most comfortable for you, but sort of, you know, continue to shed light on what you experienced and what you hope to see in the future. Okay. Let's do it. (laughs) Um, (laughs) great. So I know you said that during your story, people assume time heals all wounds Yeah. and your quick response to that is. Um, that, that's not true. It's <laughs> not true. That's a pack of lies. <laughs> and so where do you feel there has to be some sort of healing process you think you're maybe on and whether that's like with your own acceptance or acknowledgement of, cause a lot of people don't like to acknowledge their trauma. They like to pretend yeah. that, that this never happened. So yeah. what's healing process been like for you? Well, I think the first thing that I learned over 16 years of being silent um, and not dealing with my trauma is that doesn't go away. So time doesn't just heal your wounds. Like those wounds stay, they fester, they turn into other things. They affect all parts of your life. Um, And so you have to deal with it. Like you can't just keep going around the mountain. At some point you got to go through it and you got to face these things. But I think one of the things too is that, you know, trauma can be such a tangled web. Like there can be so much to unravel and deal with and face. I mean, just the idea that I have four men who raped me, that's a lot of people to deal with. Um, You know, the way that my case was handled, that's a lot of betrayal to deal with. My best friend was in the apartment. That's a lot of betrayal to deal with. So there's a lot of things I got to deal with. But I think for me, the thing I try to pursue the most is inner peace. And so I know that people, you know, when they see the fact that I met the coach who gave the men a one game suspension and, you know, I forgave him a lot of everything that I do is in pursuit of peace, because I think that when you find peace, that's when your power comes. That's when the confidence comes. That's when the healing comes. And so everything is about making peace within yourself. Um, And not only that, but I have control over that because what those men did was they take, they took away my power and my control. And what I know is that healing is in my control and my, and my power. Um, so really I've just been trying to find peace with myself, with the situation, 
with the issues and however that looks for me, whether that's, um, you know, my rape kit was thrown in the trash. So I went and I passed a law that the police can't throw rape kits in the trash in Oregon anymore. And that brought me a lot of peace that no one else would go through what I went through. Um, and so it's kind of like you heal those little wounds in different ways. And so there, it, it looks like a lot of different things. But for me, it's really about the pursuit of inner peace. You mentioned that your best friend is the one who went with you to the dorm that night for the small party that I know you've mentioned. And did you think at all that those were people that you couldn't trust that no. betray you? No, I actually, my friend actually asked me to go with her because it was an apartment, an off-campus apartment, and her boyfriend lived there with another football player from the team, and there's just a lot of guys that went in and out. So in any instance where you have a girlfriend who's going to be in an apartment with a bunch of guys, we always bring a friend, right? That's what women do. We go everywhere in pairs because we feel safer when we're in pairs. And so I was like, of course I'll go with you. Like, I'm not going to make you go over there by yourself. That's uncomfortable that, you're, you know, guys are in and out of there. Um, so no, I didn't think I was, um, I mean, even my boyfriend's best friend showed up that night and he was one of the men that raped me. So no, I didn't think I was in any danger at all, actually like none. The next day, were you by yourself or had your best friend waited to take you home? Was she aware that this was happening? So, at, well, yes, the, so I didn't know at the time, but when I had, first passed out in the living room her boyfriend took her to a back bedroom in the apartment which meant that I was left in the living room with the other four men um and then that's when I was sexually assaulted for the next six seven hours um I woke up on the middle of, in the middle of the floor face down I was naked after my attack in the morning um and I went got my clothes on I went to the back bedroom and I got her and I asked her to come out so um at that time I didn't think that she knew anything but then when we got in the car to go home and I was crying and like inconsolable, like I was trying to really figure out like what the hell just happened in there. Cause I know these people I've been here before, like what is going on? Um, she had reached out to me in the car and she put her hand on my thigh and she said, Brenda, it's going to be okay. We just got in over our heads. And when she said that to me, I knew that she knew what happened to me that night. She didn't help me. So I didn't speak to her. Um, I actually, in that moment, she just kind of became dead to me. I did, I did not know who that person was that said that to me. And we didn't, it was a probably a week and a half um, later that we spoke again. But um, if you read the police report, it's very clear that she knew what happened to me that night. How soon after this morning did you go and report that you could, could tell you had been sexually assaulted? So that morning, um, she took me home. And I think she must have called my mom uh, because my mom was with me and she was talking to me about going to the hospital. And I was telling her, like, I was in such a crisis mode. There was no way I was hiding what happened to me. Um, but she had, was talking to me about going to the hospital and I didn't want to go. But when I thought about the real life health risks, like, I don't know if they all use condoms. I didn't know if I was pregnant. I didn't know if I had HIV and STD. They used objects on me that night. There was an alcohol bottle, a flashlight, and I don't, I was passed out for a lot of it. So I don't know what all they did to my body. So when I thought about the health concerns, I thought, okay, I'll go to the hospital. And so that was when I got a rape kit done. And then when I got done with the rape kit, then I went to the police and I um, made my report. And then that next morning, they were all four arrested. They were brought in for questioning. And yeah. at the time, 
you've mentioned that the DA told you that you had no case. Yeah, it would be very hard to win. It would be very hard to win. And at this time, I think a lot of young women, you were 24 at the time, Mm -hmm. correct? A lot of young women can relate to this belief that if like an authoritative figure tells them something, especially an officer, especially someone at the police station where you are supposed to go for help, tells you something, you believe it without question because they're there to protect you. Right. It's it's another layer. Yeah. When she said that it was going to be really hard and it would be hard to prove. And I would, and not only that, but I was going to have to go through four separate trials um, and it could take years. And my rape kit was going to be made public, which meant everything. I mean, I had, when you get a rape kit done, you have pictures taken of your entire body inside and out. Um, Yeah. I just, it, didn't sound like a good deal to me. Like when I was, when she told me that, I was like, well, why, why would I prosecute then? If I can't win, what's the point of putting myself through that hell? If it's going to end up being nothing for me, then why do it? So that was when I said I wanted to drop the charges and I wasn't going to cooperate anymore. After you dropped the charges, what were those next months like processing what had happened? Well, the first thing that happened when the men were arrested was my community immediately turned on me. So it was immediately a news story because two of the men went to Oregon State and one went to Cal or was going to Cal. Um, And so immediately I was called a whore and a liar. And, you know, why is she trying to ruin these young men's lives? And who is she and what's in it for her and all that? Um, And then when I dropped the charges, then my community said, see, we told you she's a liar because if she was really raped, then she would prosecute. And if there was really a case, then the DA would prosecute. So I was just basically, everyone felt like that proved that I was a liar because the case didn't move forward. Um, so that was hard for me because I was Jane Doe. I didn't want more people to know it was me. I was already receiving death threats. People were turning on me, picking sides. Very much the same thing we see today. Um, only, I guess, on a smaller scale because we didn't have social media back then, thank God. Um but really no difference than what we see today. Who is she? Why is she lying? Why is she trying to ruin these men's careers and their lives, right? Like they, everybody was circling the wagons around them and nobody really seemed to care about me and what I was going through. A very powerful thing you mentioned is how easy it is to blame a victim or just look away and keep quiet. You said yep. it's just easier to, to look away. It's just easier to move on with your life. No one wants to say this actually happened. We have to deal with the consequences. Yes, Victim blaming is a lazy way. <laughs> it's, it's, for me, it's just lazy because I think that, I mean, there's a couple things about victim blaming, but if you can blame the victim, then you don't have to do anything. You don't have to change policies. You don't have to change laws. You don't have to hold anybody accountable. You don't have to do the hard work. So just in a, of a, as a matter of like, we just don't want to deal with it. Just blame the victim because if the victim hadn't done ABC, this would have never happened. Right. Um, and then, of course, there's always the people that just feel like, you know, good things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad people. You put yourself in that position. You know, the, the, um, okay, I'm trying to think of what the theory is called. I think it's called the, the good world theory or something like that. But if you do good things, good things happen to you, right? So if you're careful and you don't walk in dark alleys and you wear the appropriate clothing and you don't excessively drink and you don't put yourselves in bad positions, then these things will never happen to you. But the truth of the matter is, is if somebody wants to hurt you, they're going to. And the only way that one person is in harm's way is if another person means harm to them. So I can walk down a dark alley in the middle of the night, drunk, no clothes on, and nothing's going to happen to me unless another person is there that wants to hurt me. 
So, and with that, you were someone that didn't drink. You said you grew, you came yeah. from a family where you witnessed alcohol taking over people, alcoholism, and you were someone that stayed away. But then that mm-hmm. night had one, maybe two, maybe it was like four it? ounces of a mixed drink, yeah, a tangerine orange juice that had been drugged. And so I believe so. Yeah. You're a good person that does good things. And then this still like, that doesn't make you susceptible to the, the most powerful thing you said was should rape be a consequence of. Exactly. And that's how I teach a lot of people to deal with victim blaming is if you hear someone blaming a victim, because sometimes it's easy to go down a rabbit hole. If you don't, if you're not really like immersed in the issue, like I am right. Like I can go toe to toe with anybody on the issue of victim blaming. And I feel very confident. But if you're just a regular person who's having a hard time with like, well, she was drinking and she was there and we told her not to go there. And, you know, with the Kavanaugh thing, we saw um, people mad at the woman, one of the women, because that party was known for rapes or something. And so people were like, oh, well, if you knew there, there were rapes there, then why would you go there? Right. So I think, though, regardless of what happens is should rape be a consequence of and if you fill in the blank, whatever that is drinking should rape be a consequence of drinking no should rape be a consequence of going somewhere your parents told you not to go should rape be a consequence of being somewhere where you know something happened previously no rape should never be a consequence of anything so there's it's never the victim's fault ever never what is it like when you nowadays because of me too and fortunately victims finding their voices more when you People go back and forth in this, and I don't want to get too political, but when you hear someone um, come forward saying that in assault, they've been assaulted, and as someone who believes in the good of men and is nurturing these young men's lives, what's your initial reaction to someone who's coming forward? Like, we need to look into this further, or anyone coming forward is always valid in their claims? How do you approach it today, given your experiences and with all the young men you are meeting? Well, number one, I think it's important to understand that, that, you know, false reports do happen, but they're very minimal. I mean, they're like 2% of all reports are false, um, making over, you know, 98% of all reports real. The other thing is that there's nothing wrong with believing crime victims. The, the only crime where we don't initially believe the victim is acts of sexual violence and domestic violence. Because when we have crime victims who say, I was carjacked, I had a home invasion, I was robbed, whatever it is. We always give the crime victim the benefit of the doubt. We believe them and we allow due process to happen. But when it happens with sexual assault survivors and domestic violence survivors, we say, oh, is she lying? Why can't we give survivors the benefit of the doubt? Why can't you just believe them and allow due process to carry out? That's why we have laws. That's why we have have prosecutors and we have investigations and we have Title IX and all these things. You can believe a survivor, support them, and allow due process to be carried out. You can do both. Well, sexual assault is probably the worst thing you can do to another human being. Like, and so I think maybe people, if they're assuming like an accusation against someone and a male, like would potentially, it ruins his whole life, his reputation, even if it's not proved. And so I think that's why we see like college coaches and these people in these athletic communities unfortunately not doing what you're saying and giving the victim the benefit of the doubt and thinking that no one would claim this if it wasn't actually true. And something that you said that 
like made me have chills was I can rationalize a rapist, but I cannot rationalize the people that look away. And there were a lot of people in your story who looked away. Uh, Tons. And so when you started to figure out the people that had conspired and the conversations that went on behind the scenes, how did you first start to catch wind that something had went down that you did not know about that day you went to the police? So I didn't know anything until 16 years later. So I came forward in November, 2014 and I shared my story and then an investigation happened at Oregon state. And then my reporter did an investigation And one month later in December, 2014, I got the results of the investigation. And that's when I found out that my rape kit was thrown in the trash before the statute of limitations was up. It wasn't tested. Uh, the DA did not tell me about the tape confessions they had from all four men. Uh, the university president told everybody don't talk about Brenda, even though the sexual assault, I had, I had reported to the school, the sexual assault counselor got the police report and took it to the school. So that was when I found out that all these people knew what happened to me and nobody did anything. Like they intentionally did everything they could to get me to go away and it worked. So that was 16 years later that I found that out. And could you talk to me a little bit about the main reason all these people had conspired? So back then, um, the Oregon State Athletic Department was in debt. I think it was about a million dollars. Their football stadium was called Parker Stadium, and they wanted to renovate the the football stadium. And that takes money, and that takes big money donations, and rape scandals are not good for money donations. So they uh, managed to get my story to go away very quickly. And then um, the Reeser family actually wrote Oregon State a $5 million check. And that was when the very next year after my rape, uh, Parker Stadium was renovated to Reeser Stadium. And that's the stadium that's there today. So it all worked. Have you been to that stadium since? Yeah, I've been there. I'm an Oregonian. I live here. Um, I've been to the Oregon State campus and done some work with them since my story came out. Um, It's hard because... I'm acutely aware that that stadium was built off of my back and my pain and the pain of my children. Um, you know, I was very close to committing suicide um, on my way to the hospital actually to get my rape kit done. I had decided to kill myself on the way. And, uh, but it was because I was going to, the, to get the rape kit done that I couldn't do it right then. And so I thought, well, I'll just go get the rape kit done and then I'll go home and I'll die. And um, it was my nurse, actually, that inspired me to live and actually inspired me to become a nurse. Um, I'm a registered nurse today, and it's because of her that I am. But um, I don't know what the I don't know what all that says about me as a human or my worth or my value or what that says about humanity. And four years later, I'm still trying to wrap my brain around. Like, why? Like, why didn't I matter? And why was it so easy for people to just decide that a building was more important? And I think about the fact that my children almost didn't have a mother. And their father was in prison for most of their life. So my children almost ended up without a mother or a father because somebody wanted a football stadium. And so when you think about the the generational trauma that happens from these instances and is inflicted by these so-called good people, people who just enable and look away. It's devastating. And, uh, you know, thank God I have a faith foundation 
you know, and I'm able to use this trauma for good because I don't know how else I would make sense of it. And I think that's a lot of what my advocacy work is, is just trying to make sense of it, make it mean something. I watched a very powerful interview of you saying that if you could go back, you wouldn't change a thing because of the impact you know you're making on so yeah. many lives right now. Yeah, that's true. I think, and, and I think that's part of my healing process. One of the most selfless things I've ever heard someone say. Yeah, I do really think that. I mean, I think that if the reality is, if back then everything had gone the way it was supposed to go, I would have gotten justice for myself. But today, you know, I get justice for thousands. I mean, I've helped pass eight laws in my state for survivors just in Oregon. Um, I've impacted thousands of lives across the country. I've inspired survivors to go get help and disclose and get counseling and, you know, men and women, even the football players I work with. So, um, yeah, I mean, it, I don't want to, you know, be selfish and say like, it feels good, but it, but it does. And it's just, there's just, there's purpose, right? Like, I don't think we have to just let pain be pain. You can take that pain and turn it into a purpose because who can help another rape survivor better than me? a rape survivor. If I hadn't gone through these things, I wouldn't be able to make these connections and help the population of people that I am. So yeah, if I could, today I can definitely say if I could go back and stop it, I wouldn't because I wouldn't be who I am today and I wouldn't be able to do the work that I do today. And I feel honored and blessed to be who I am today and do the work that I do. What sort of interaction did you have with that nurse that day? Because it sounds like she really impacted your life because she's the reason yeah. that you got that seat. <laughs> and was this just like you got that day? She really was affectionate towards you and caring towards you. Or did that start a real, like a friendship moving forward? So I knew when I was going to the hospital, I figured that it was going to be an uncomfortable situation. I knew I was going to have to tell the nurse what I was going to do. Rape kits are very invasive. Like the last thing you want to do is just like open up your whole entire body and take off all your clothes and have somebody poke and prod you after you've been violated. So I knew it was going to be a hard process. And I thought Jenny would look at me like I was disgusting because, you know, what happened to me was disgusting. Is Jenny the nurse? Yeah, Jenny. Uh, yeah, sorry, nurse Jenny. Um, but when I got to the hospital and I met Nurse Jenny, like, it wasn't awkward. There was a very, I can't put my finger on it, but there was something, like, just comforting about her. And I didn't feel awkward, and she didn't look at me like I was gross. And when she, she had to leave the room for a minute at the beginning of my exam, and I was sitting on the exam table in my hospital gown, and I said out loud, God, why should I be here? Because I really wanted, I needed to know why I should be here. And I felt like I heard him say, I want you to become a nurse and take care of your sons. But I had never thought about becoming a nurse ever. But I also knew in that moment I had heard from God. And so when she came back into the room, she would say things like, Brenda, we need to do the vaginal exam. And I'd say, Jenny, where did you go to school and how did you become a nurse? And she'd say, Brenda, we have to pluck 10 head hairs and 10 pubic hairs. And I'd say, Jenny, you know, how'd you pay for school? Is there financial aid? And we just ping-ponged back and forth for about, four and a half hours until I knew everything I needed to do to go to school. And I actually started school three months, almost to the day of that rape kit. I started school and uh, became a registered nurse, got my bachelor's. I have a master's in business and healthcare management too. I still have my license today and it's because of Jenny. That's, are you, are you guys still close today? Do you still keep in touch? So I, so the thing that I talk about a lot about in my sessions with the guys that I work with is that um, I didn't tell Jenny I was suicidal. So she didn't know that she saved my life that day. She literally was just doing her job. 
And I think that's important for everyone because you don't know what another person's going through. You don't like, we think we do, but you really don't know what another person's going through. So what if you just do something small? What if you're just not rude to a person that's rude to you or you smile or you just do your job with excellence and integrity? Like Jenny was just doing her job that day, but she saved my life. So imagine how many people we could possibly affect um, by just being good, you know, good people. <laughs> um, but no, we never, we never talked again. And then my reporter found her 16 years later. She was at the same hospital. Um, it was really, it's a really crazy story, but he reunited us. Um, oh. and I got, and I got to tell her that she saved my life. She didn't know that she had, I was the first survivor she'd ever seen come back after a rape kit. She never had met another one. You know, I, was, I was the only one. I mean, cause why do you, why would you go back to be like, Hey, thanks for doing my rape kit. You know what I mean? Like, it's not something that survivors do. So. And do you fully, sometimes people know they're doing good things with their life and they know <laughs> that they're living in a way that is inspiring to others. But do you really process the fact that you, you have prevented sexual assaults of other women because of the men you've impacted? Um, I don't really think about it. I mean, I hear stories and people, you know, give me their testimonies and, and I know that I impact lives, but I don't, I don't know. I just feel like Brenda. I feel like a regular person. Um, sometimes I have to like consciously think about like, okay, if you tweet this, it could become an article. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like people are watching, people are listening, like you're impacting people. So sometimes I have to remind myself that I am a public figure. Um, but you know, I just, I try to make sure that my heart always stays in the right place. And it's really just about making sure that what happened to me doesn't happen to anyone else. So I, I, I'm trying to accept it more. You know what I mean? When people say like, you're so courageous, I try to just say, thank you. Instead of being like, no, I'm not. And cause it doesn't feel courageous to me. It just feels like, it just feels like what I'm supposed to do. It just, this is my calling in my life. This is what, this is my life's purpose. So. And educating our younger men and women about this is so important because I don't think sex is talked about enough in a healthy way. And so people growing up aren't learning the right ways to be physical with someone else. And when I, once I started following your Instagram, you posted something that I just like had to sit and, and reread. You said people getting comfortable talking about sex and have a hard time saying the words penis and vagina, but then expect a rape victim to walk into the police station and talk to a detective like it's nothing. Yeah. And, Very true. <laughs> and along with that, we both had shared the Jamila Jamil video about teaching our youth about sex because otherwise they learn it from porn. And yep. so as much as these male athletic figures and these college players need to know that they are they are the problem, but also the solution. How important is it for young women to know what like enthusiastic consent is and what being comfortable with someone is and, and being the person that says yes and no? Because I think a lot of women are kind of falling under this belief that you have to do what they want you to do. Yeah. Not yeah. what you want. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's important for everybody. Everybody should have agency and autonomy over their own body, and everyone deserves to enjoy sex. And it's really sad that, you know, we can't even talk about healthy sex in our society, but we expect people to talk about sexual violence. And you're right. Like, if you don't teach your kids about sex and healthy sex, then porn will teach your kids about sex. And that's not sex. 
like porn is not real. Um, and the expectations of, of men and women that we get from porn are just, you know, it's, it's off the charts and it's horrible and it's ugly. Um, but yeah, it's, it's very, very important. And I wish that we would take the stigma off of these issues. I mean, we should be able to say penis and vagina without having a problem. Like I don't have a problem saying it anymore. It doesn't bother me. Um, but not everybody can do that. And if you have a problem saying penis and vagina, then how are you ever going to talk about anything that matters as far as healthy sex or sexual violence or anything like that? How are we, how are we supposed to report if nobody's comfortable? Even the people taking the, the complaint, the detectives aren't always comfortable with those things either. And they misname the parts and the genders and everything. So it's just, it's a mess. So we got to take the stigma away from these issues. What's your main takeaway that you hope to leave your audience with? And then specifically, if you would, wouldn't mind explaining why it is you target males. I think for men, the main takeaway I want them to understand is their ability, ability to help or harm. And for the women, I think a lot of times my main um, thing for them is that if something happens to you, God forbid, because most likely it will, um, it's not your fault. Those are like the two main things. Um, but for men, I think, you know, understanding your ability to help or harm is really important because I don't think they think about that. I don't think that a lot of times I'm the very first survivor they've ever heard from. And I talk about being suicidal and I talk about PTSD and I talk about how it damaged my relationship with my children. And, you know, I talked very candidly and openly about all the struggles I went through um, after my gang rape. And so, you know, I don't know that, I think sometimes people just don't understand the trauma and they don't understand the suffering, like the real suffering that survivors go through and how much it impacts our entire lives. And I think if I could get men to understand like, you had the ability to help or to really harm this person for life. I think that that makes a difference, a difference for most men. Most men don't want to hurt another person. They, they don't. They don't. And also no one can imagine what it feels like to be assaulted if they have not been assaulted. And so, and, and because there's not a lot of people like you speaking about their story and what they've gone through, it's sort of this, other concepts people don't want to think about. But yeah. Even if they tried to think about it, they wouldn't even get close to what no. someone like you had actually experienced. Right. And I tell people all the time, because people ask me, like, why do you share your story in really graphic detail? And the reason that I do that is because if I tell you I was gang raped for four or by four men for six hours, I don't know what that means to you. And you've probably sugarcoated it in your mind. But if I actually walk you through the things that I remember about that night and how horrific it was, I promise you, you are not even thinking close to what, what happened that night. And you, and once I tell you that and share that with you, you have no choice but to see me as the victim of a horrible crime. And then as I explain my advocacy work, you have no choice but to see me as a survivor. And that for me is how I humanize myself and hopefully humanize other survivors. Um, but we shouldn't have to share the details of our stories to get through to people. And I don't suggest that other survivors do it. I think that this is a special calling that I have for myself that I do, and I'm a master of self-care. So I can rip open my wound over and over and over, but it's, I don't suggest it in any way at all for any other survivor. But overall, you think that this has had more positive mental health effects on you because it has been your form of self-care? 
Yeah, I mean, I think everything I do is in my way. Um, and I do, you know, what, I, I do things the way I want to do them. You know what I mean? Like, I share my story the way that I want to share it. It's not a written script. I don't write it down. I just get up there and I talk and I share from my heart. Um, so it's never quite exactly the same. And maybe I leave one part out. Maybe I don't. It just depends on how I'm feeling that day, but I'm in control of what I say and what I do. It's my story. No one else's. Has there ever been, ever been an event where you were scheduled to speak and you, you weren't able to for whatever reason that day? Uh, no, I've always managed to get up there and do it. Um, there's definitely days I feel more confident and capable than others. Um, there's certainly days that are harder for me than others. Um, Recently, I was at a school and one of my friends had committed suicide the week before. And so when I got to the part where I talked about dealing with my own potential suicide and, you know, suicidal ideation and all that, that was really, really hard for me. Um, but at the same time, I'm just authentic with my audience. I just, you know, there's a moment where I thought I wasn't going to keep be able to keep continuing. And I just said to them, you know what, I'm having a hard time right now. Um, my friend just committed suicide a week ago, so I just need you to bear with me. And I just continue to be as transparent and real with my audience as possible because, you know, they're kind of going on this journey with me. And I don't know. I think authenticity is something that's really lost on our generation and our society right now. Like, people want real people, not Instagram. <laughs> and it's scary to be real and it's scary to be authentic. But I think that's where my power is is the ability to be really, really authentic. And don't you think it's such like a light feeling to know that every second of your day, you are being Brenda, you are being you. And yes. there's no secrets, there's no guilt, there's no, like you are just, this is me. I don't, I don't yes. control everything, but I'm embracing and yes. figuring out everything that happens yeah. to me. Yeah, survivors live double lives all the time, right? You have your public facing side and you have your side that's struggling as a survivor. So we live a double life all the time and that takes a lot of energy and it's hard. And so today I live one life, like what, who you see on Twitter, who you see at a school, who you're hearing from now, that's how I am in my everyday life. There's nothing different about me at home than is in public. Like, you know, like I didn't really brush my hair today, but because <laughs> I'm at home, but what you see is what you get. I'm one person. That's it. There's not, there's not any big surprises. There's not going to be some big expose of Brenda behind the scenes acted like this, but her, you know, her public figure is something else. Like I'm not a brand. I'm a person. What? I love that. I love that. I'm not a brand. I'm not a person. What is your advice to maybe another woman or girl listening to our episode right now thinking, I am living that double life. People don't know about this. My, my parents don't know, or maybe no one knows. What would you say to them? I would say, first off, it's not your fault and you're not alone. And if you feel like you want to say something, then find a person that you trust to talk to. And also understand if you feel like there's no one in your life directly that you feel like you can trust, like there's so many communities on social media and different people out here of survivors that want to be there for each other. Nobody is alone in this anymore. Like you have, there's a survivor that wants to, you know, share this with you, be there for you. So just don't ever think that you're isolated or alone and, it, and you did nothing wrong. So there's no reason for you to feel like you can't share your story. You're not the one that did anything wrong. The perpetrator did something wrong. They're the ones that should be ashamed. So all that shame that you're taking for them, give it back. It's not yours. 
it's not yours. Along with that, how do you deal with, I've, I've seen some of the tweets you've reposted of people who ridicule you or once you do come forward, they still shame you. How do you deal with that when you know that they have no idea what it's like to be you and that they're so wrong, but they just keep sending you this hate? Yeah, so my trolls are pretty ugly. Um, but I think that for me, I think one of the biggest lies that my trauma told me all those years was that I was weak and I was broken. And the fact of the matter is, is you literally cannot be weak and survive rape, period. Like, that's such a lie that your trauma tells you. So the moment when I realized that I'm actually really strong because I've survived, then I was like, what? Like, I can do anything. Like, I can sur if I can survive that, I can survive anything. So now when I look at my trolls, I'm like, do you really think a little bullying and threats is going to, like, stop me? Like, I survived a gang rape in the aftermath. Like, you're an idiot if you think sending me death threats is going to do anything to me. Like, I won't be silent. You can't silence me. Sorry. It just actually gives me more, more fuel to my fire <laughs> to, like, keep going <laughs> and show people what it's really like for survivors, right? Like, no matter what, we receive backlash. No matter what. You could have a, a, you could have a rape on video and people will still call you a liar. That's something you do a great job of is not letting that hate get to you and also sort of embracing the people who've wronged you. And you did that recently when you embraced Mike Riley, who was the former coach of the players that raped you. And yeah. you sort of had a moment of, I don't even know if it's, I don't want to put words in your mouth, if that was closure or what it was like to you, but having that conversation with someone that had that power and looked away in your darkest time, how did that feel for you? And was that something you would, were hoping would happen in the future of your life or something you never wanted to have happened, but he reached out to you? I mean, I had no idea that was going to happen. I mean, he did reach out to me. Um, I had no intention of necessarily reaching out to him directly, but when the story came out and I talked about him, cause he said, these are good guys that just made a bad choice. And those words stuck with me for a long time. He gave him a one game suspension. Um, so that, that burned me for all those years. You know, one of those good people that didn't do the right thing. And so when he reached out to me to meet me, um, you know, I kind of took it with a grain of salt at first, but he kept reaching out. And so I finally decided to go. I thought maybe this was a moment for me to find some healing. Um, and so when I went to meet him, I sat down with him and told him how much I hated him and how he had affected my life. Um, but what I think that people need to understand about that moment is that we, we get confused about what forgiveness is because when I went to Lincoln, like forgiveness was not about him. It was about me and forgiveness is not about the person who hurt you. It's about you making peace with something that's been tormenting you. I right. So I was going to Lincoln, Nebraska to meet him and I was leaving with forgiveness no matter what he said or did. Like I was making peace with that situation in my life because that's my choice and my decision. It wasn't dependent on him. And as long as we decide that the person who hurts us controls whether we are able to forgive or not, we will be a slave to them always. So at some point you got to decide like forgiveness is about me. It's for me. It's not for them. I don't condone what he did. I, I will never condone what he did. Any backlash that he receives today, that's on him. Those were his choices and what he said and what he did. Um, but I deserve peace. I deserve to be able to move on with my life. And what Coach Riley did when I met him was, you know, he made it easier for me because he held himself accountable, right? Like, you can apologize to a person 
and say, I'm sorry, period. Or you can say, I'm sorry, but here's why you shouldn't be upset with me. The I'm sorry, but is where we get in trouble. If you say, I'm sorry, and you put a period on it. You don't make excuses. You don't defend yourself and just hold yourself accountable to that person in your part, which is what he did. That's where you can, that's where you can find some healing. And I wish we saw more of that of that in our society, people holding themselves accountable to other people. Have you heard from or received anything from the men who assaulted you trying to hold themselves accountable for their actions? Do you know if they're aware of no. what you did? Uh, yeah, they're aware. All of them were named by name and their faces, their pictures were in my original story. It's all public record. Um, so yeah, they, they all know the stories out there. They know who I am, but none of them have tried to contact me. None of them have tried to sue me. Um, they've all just, I think, tried to lay low and hope it blows over and goes away. <laughs> have you forgiven them from afar the same way you're saying you forgave Mike Riley? Or are these four people that you know are always going to be in a separate category for you that that won't probably be be forgiven and touched yeah well i don't think forgiveness always looks the same for every person in every situation and no i have not forgiven those men um i harbor a lot of anger because i think that um mostly about my children i think that those men stole the opportunity for me to be the mom that i deserve to be my children were raised my sons were raised by a woman who was depressed suicidal dealing with PTSD and a borderline eating disorder. So to say that my sons weren't affected by my trauma would be an understatement. And, you know, today we have a good relationship and we work hard on it, but I'm angry that they stole those years from me. My sons didn't deserve that. I didn't deserve that. You know, I didn't, I didn't have the opportunity to be the mom that my sons deserved. And that, I have a lot of regret about that. It's, it's hard for me to think about, not being the, a great mom. You know what I mean? Like, I, I can't get those years back. Um, and I watch my son struggle today. And I know that if we don't break the cycle, they'll hand on that trauma to the, their children and, and so on and so forth. So those are the things I'm really angry with them about. Not what they did to me in the apartment, but how they affected my life. Um, so, you know, some days I think I do better than others. But, you know, I have no desire to, to talk to them, to speak to them, to see them. There's nothing they could say to me that would make a difference for me. Um, this is just your own journey that you're going to take and you don't ever need their contact or anything from them. It's just every day you having this conversation with yourself and seeing where you feel you're at. And that's what I really want survivors to know. Like you don't need any approval or words or acceptance or accountability from anybody else. Like you get to decide how your journey of healing looks, what you want to do with it. You might have to get creative, but all of that is within your control. It's already within you. And yeah, I, I don't, yeah, I don't need them to, to heal or to get better. And the idea of, you know, I don't want to place that responsibility on them anyways, because what if they don't do the right thing that I need? Right. Then that means I can't ever heal or move on. And that's just garbage. They will never have that power control over me ever again. I control my narrative and my story and my healing, not them. And how has that strength kind of parlayed into the rest of your life now? I could imagine in all other areas, like you've survived something, some people don't. And so yeah. in other aspects, literally, of, literally it's, it's tragic. And so in some, and in, in the other aspects of your life, do you have this sense of, I can do anything I want to do because look at what I've survived. I kind of do. Yeah. With God. 
with God, I feel, you know, Nike, just do it is kind of my mantra. And I just kind of feel like with God, just do it. And I say that a lot to myself (laughs) or just do it with God. Like I do feel like with the supernatural, you know, powers of, of God or mother universe or whatever you want to call it, whatever being is bigger than all of us. Um, I do believe that, that, um, I kind of can do anything if I, if I want to, as long as it's within God's plan for my life. Um, but I don't place limits on myself. I don't, I don't say that things can't be done. Um, I try to keep my mind open to everything. If I have a dream, I think, okay, dream big and then dream even bigger. What, what can I not even think of or comprehend? Um, I don't place any limits on myself ever. I don't. You can tell by the amazing life you've built for yourself and the way you inspire hundreds is incredible. And if you ever come to USC, I, I just graduated, but I live close by. Have you spoken at USC? I have not yet, but there's a young man on the team named Chris Steele. And um, I've started to do some work with him. He's a new recruit to the team. And so I know that he's talking to the coach about possibly bringing me in. So that hopefully be, I'll be there soon. That would be amazing. And I would love to come hear you share your story in person. Oh, that'd be great. Yeah, that'd be amazing. Um, yeah. And so, okay, well, I will hope that that can be arranged in the future. But I just want to say again, thank you so much for coming on RealPod. It means the world to me that you wanted to share your story on with this to my community on this platform. And I hope that I know that of the the many women listening, someone's life was changed by what you've shared today. So thank Thank you. you. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thank you guys for listening to today's episode with Brenda Tracy. I'm sure you were just as inspired and touched as I was and as usually all people are when they hear Brenda's story. To follow Brenda, her Instagram is brendatracy24. And if you are a survivor or in need of help due to sexual assault or sexual violence, you can please call the National Sexual Assault Hotline is 800-656-4673. And as Brenda said, if you are going through something or need to talk to someone or just need help to please reach out to the communities and the loved ones around you because there are people that want to hear your story and want to be there for you. Thank you guys for listening to today's episode and I hope to see you back here next Tuesday.